Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Mick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. For this episode, I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, Jake Gunnison, as well as returning panelist and Arman in Enterprise, Andrew Carter. Welcome back, Andrew. Howdy, how's it going? Uh, now, just like with your previous appearance, Andrew, the next 20 minutes are all yours. What would you like to talk about? Awesome. So, um, like everybody else, I've been having a good time playing with Swift over the past few years. And um, ever since that great WWDC talk about the um, protocol-oriented programming, or, you know, pop programming, we've all been trying to find new ways to program our apps to find these, you know, more efficient ways than using inheritance, using the configuration bits instead, and using protocols over classes. So there's been a lot of talks out there, a lot of a lot of information about just here's how to do this, and here's some high-level, you know, what this is, and here's some neat things and new ways to think about stuff. But there hasn't been a whole lot of, like, concrete examples of, like, here's a really easy thing you can do to just get your feet wet with it that solves a good real-world problem. And a few of our current apps that we, we've been working on here at Willow Tree, we've got a few little examples you can kind of like ease your way into the whole protocol and programming world by doing um, protocol extensions. So there's um, three or four little examples that have kind of come up here with I'd like to talk about with you guys. Just before we get into those, Andrew, so mm-hmm. anybody with a, an iOS background uh, coming from, say, Objective-C will have some experience in protocols because obviously they were part of the Objective-C or still are part of the Objective-C right. language. But when Swift came and they did that big... Uh, session that really popular session at WWDC, it was like the um, protocols in Swift. It's an entire shift in the in the paradigm and the uh, the approach to the language and how you implement it. And I was just wondering because you are in enterprise and you're building client apps for big big clients, you know, probably often with with large user bases that kind of stuff. Was it was it an easy idea to sell? Was it something you didn't even talk to your clients about? How quickly so, were people uh, internally willing to adopt it? Sure. So it's, it's funny you ask that. Um, we, um, you know, when the when the when the first Swift beta was announced, we were all super excited here internally, and um, a, a very big, you know, two year project was just starting for me that that month. And um, I hopped on the train right away, and I was like, "We're going to do this." The client was super happy about it. It is something we talk to our clients about. You know, the clients come to us not just for, "Hey, can you guys make us this app?" But looking for advice on, you know, good ways to do strategy or the the right way to do things or new ways to do technology. So when they ask us, you know, should we look into this new technology or should we use Swift? Um, our answer was, "Yeah, let's give it a shot." When Swift was still in beta, we actually ended up doing a lot of. We did a lot of work in Swift and then ended up going back to Objective-C just because the language wasn't quite ready yet to handle those kind of big applications. You know, when it got to the point where you press compile and it took seven minutes to compile every single time, like, that's not a very good word for it. <laughs> we ended up switching back to Objective-C initially, but now, it's, you know, it's been out for a few years. Xcode's gotten better. You know, it's you can, it doesn't crash every 10 minutes anymore. We have a bunch of older apps that with Objective-C code bases that we're now starting to intermingle in, you know, Swift code as well. And that's been working out pretty well. So, like, lots of the newer features of the app are using Swift, and the older features are using Objective-C, and they talk together pretty nice. But all of our new applications we're doing here at work, we're doing all with Swift. Um, there's a there's a few clients here and there that have maybe a, a library that's in Objective-C or some, you know, requirements for it to use some other Objective-C code. So it's not, you know, we're not running all Swift, but I would say it's easy, you know, 90 95% Swift now here at Willow Tree. Okay, and um, so because you've you've, shifted into Swift um, over that time period. Are you just taking full advantage of all the language features or are you kind of slowly 
uh, dipping your toe in the water just to see, you know, like to find your own way. Um, because, as you said, a lot of this stuff isn't well documented yet and there aren't really that many concrete examples to to research and learn from, especially when it comes to your topic at the minute, uh, protocol-oriented programming. So I'm just wondering, you've got this large adoption of Swift in Willow Tree, which is great, but sort of how deep into the language are you willing to go? Right, it's interesting. So there's there's um, we've got a few guys here have been, you know, working with other languages with similar concepts and they've been kind of good at guiding us. Um, it's, you know, it's pretty easy to write Swift code as just like a translation of what you would have done on Objective-C. And I guess there's nothing like fundamentally wrong with that, but you're not really taking advantage of the new things that Swift comes, you know, what it brings to the table. I think with a lot of us, you know, even those of us who have been doing iOS programming for like four or five years now, your first Swift project you do is going to be much, much different than the second and third you're going to do. Because like you said, it's it's there's a ton of new patterns and there's really no... You know, you can Google something like, you know, how do I do this in Objective-C or how do I do this in iOS? And those are nice, you know, there's established patterns, there's things that the community's doing. And with Swift, we're still figuring that out. So um, it's kind of exciting because you get to think of the new patterns and you get to think of new ways of doing things. But it's scary, too, because is it, you know, is your idea a good idea or a bad idea? But I think we've got enough, um, we've got some guys that have done languages similar to Swift enough. And there's enough of a... You know, we, we do a code review system here using pull request on GitHub. So we try to do a thing where, like, if this is your first new Swift project, the guy reviewing your code has been doing Swift hopefully for at least a year or so, so he can kind of catch any kind of new mistakes or help you find patterns that you could be using that you're not using. Or if you thought of a new cool pattern, then he's able to then take that back and maybe enhance it even more or bring it to other members of the team. So it's a big it's a big team effort, just kind of like all of us helping each other learn this stuff as we go. I mean, this this is really cool because this is the kind of stuff that you know, people working on their own or, or maybe in really small teams of one or two people, that's the kind of thing they're going to miss out on. So so to have this huge sort of learning exercise and being able to contribute back to the rest of the team or pull in um, not necessarily iOS developers, but developers who are experienced in a language that has similar traits and paradigms to Swift and, and learn from them, I think that's really a big advantage. So, I mean, that's right. pretty cool to, to learn about. But you mentioned that you were bringing some examples to the table so me and jake are ready to have our minds blown uh, if you want to take <laughs> us through your first one sure so the um i want to start with kind of a more like a you know lightweight easy to understand kind of one so again the what i want to focus on was protocol extensions so we had you know we've had categories as far as i know forever in objective c and it's an easy way to kind of tack on functionality to you know apple classes maybe you want to add something in a string that's specific to your project um which is great but the kind of the bad thing is once you've added that category, everything's got it. So it's 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 very global almost when you've added these things onto it. With Swift, they've given us now. I think starting with Swift two, wasn't it, that we can make we can define a protocol and then make what feels like an Objective C category, but it's called a protocol extension on that protocol to kind of give that protocol default functionality. One of my favorite little tools we've made here is this. We define a protocol named class name nib loadable. So you find yourself a lot of the time, if you're loading up views or objects out of nibs, be it for a table view cell or just a sub view you're going to add, you've got to you know, instantiate the nib, you have to know the name of the nib, you have to find the, the class that you're looking for within that nib. But we've, in the past, had a category that kind of just, you, you apply it to UI view or NS object globally, which gives you this load myself from a nib functionality. Um, but again, everyone gets that. And it kind of works on the assumption that whatever the name of the class is, is the same name that the nib is. So that may not always be true, but because the way Objective-C categories worked, it, it, that, that assumption is kind of just broadly made for everybody. 
So with this Swift protocol I've made, again called class name nib loadable, I've made an extension on it. So the extension gives you the ability to load the nib, load the instance from the nib, and you have to kind of opt into it. So if I've got like a table view cell subclass who's named like my table view cell, who has a nib named my table view cell, I can then add that protocol to myself so I can say I am class name nib loadable. And because I've opted into it, it's kind of a more safer assumption to make that, yes, I am my table view cell and I've, I've got a nib that goes along with me that I'm contained in called my table view cell. So that works for not just table view cells, but basically anything put into a nib, which I guess it really is anything that's an NS object, right? So it makes it really easy to load up nibs to be used for reusable table view cells. It makes it really easy to unarchive things from nibs. And again, it's opt-in instead of a global thing that is applied to everybody, which is kind of bad because you can't always make that assumption. In this instance, then, it sounds like you're using uh, protocols and protocol extensions for two, for two things, really. One is to stash boilerplate code. You know, as mm-hmm. you said, you find yourself writing this code over and over and over again, and it's it's a really good idea to sort of refactor that out. But rather than doing it in a class that you have to instantiate or anything like that, putting it in a protocol extension makes a ton of sense. And then you are using, uh, and then you're opting in. So rather than putting it on an existing object as you would in Objective C, and it being available globally on any instance of that object, you are actually saying, okay, I'm going to be incredibly selective about where I inherit this behaviour. Um, and I suppose, I mean, you may want to touch on this a little later on. I don't think we spoke about it when we, we discussed this with, uh, with the theory of pop with Greg back in episode two. You can obviously, you can apply almost predicate-like language. I know it's very uh, right. basic, but, but even when you are adopting a protocol on an object, you can do it in a, only in specific circumstances as well so are you sure yeah are you, are you applying that kind of stuff here yeah or? so that's that does happen here and there's even like a more there's even a better example for that i'll give you too okay so it's, it's almost like in i think you're kind of getting to this it almost feels like multiple inheritance but without the bad things of multiple inheritance right like you're you're tacking on functionality onto your classes almost like you're inheriting it but you're not you're not doing like you know c plus plus style multiple inheritance so in the case of this class name nib loadable guy the way the extension works is because you can only put NS object subclasses inside of nibs, the way that extension's worded is you have this extension class name nib loadable where self NS object. So the only ones that are going to be able to get this functionality is that the guy conforming to the protocol is an NS object. So if you tack that onto some, you know, let's say it's a pure Swift class, you're not going to get that functionality to load it from the nib because you can't put those things in a nib, right? Kind of a guy that kind of goes hand in hand with that. There's another one that we've been using a lot in here, which we've been calling identifiable by class name. Um, and this protocol is good for, you can think of map annotation views, view controller storyboard identifiers, table view reuse identifiers, basically any kind of class that you usually do the DQing system from with identifiers or loading with identifiers. So again, with the C, we had a category that we would just return the name of the class. And you're making that assumption that, you know, your storyboard identifier for my view controller is going to be my view controller. Same thing here. So we have this protocol, identical by class name, and we can say, all right, extension on identical by class name, where self is a UI view controller, I'm going to have a static var called storyboard identifier, which is going to return a string that's, you know, the string of myself, my class. So it's an opt-in thing again. So anybody that does do that can opt into it. And now you've got this for free storyboard identifier, reusable identifier for your cells, or, you know, map uh, annotation identifiers. It's a really easy way to, 
to, you know, you save yourself a ton of boilerplate code. You're not making global changes. And you kind of like, it's a good way to remind yourself, hey, I better make sure that I actually do have my um, identifier be the same name as my class. The, the examples we've talked about so far revolve mostly around kind of adding functionality to um, UIKit classes. And I think in the case of Coco, any class that we're working with already, that, that seems to be the, the, the most useful use case for, for protocols it, because we already have, right? The UIKit's already this class-based hierarchical system. Right. But I've been kind of playing with protocols lately just in, in my own project. And I'm starting from scratch. I'm trying to build up kind of you know my, my model layer. Do you have any advice or any experience? I mean, normally when I, when I go to build you know, my model layer, I obviously start with a class and then I think about base classes and subclassing and the protocol oriented programming kind of, kind of flips that around. So would you still, do you still start with a class? Sure. So um, it, it feels weird at first. You feel like you're kind of doing like duplicate effort to start with a protocol rather than starting with a class or a struct. But then once you've done that, you kind of open up this big door to where like a good example is, let's say you're making a, you're making an app that will eventually have your models backed by core data. But, you know, in the meantime, or maybe for your first prototyping phase, you just want to use classes or structs so it's a little bit simpler to develop against. Instead of having to go through and, you know, refactor your entire app later on when you want to switch to core data, instead of defining your models and passing around the type itself, you pass around the protocol. So maybe you have, like, you know, for a Twitter app, a tweet object. Don't start with a tweet managed object. Don't start with a tweet class or struct. Start with a tweet protocol. And then the view controller, whatever it is that wants to take that tweet and do something with it, no matter what it is, as long as it conforms to that tweet protocol, it's going to work out just fine. So you can swap out, like, or swap out whatever your database layer is to then return this managed object subclass, or return this struct, or return this class. And as long as it's a tweet, you know, it's conforming to that tweet protocol, it's going to work out. Same thing for like, um, I've had a really good time with, uh, so like network APIs, let's say you've got like a test endpoint for doing your testing and then you have your real API, or maybe even, you know, you want to separate it out for production API versus sandbox API. If you start with your API layer, don't define a class or a struct that is your API, define a protocol. So this protocol might have a thing like get tweets and for your mock your mock API that can just return some hard-coded tweets or return something from the local file system. And then you pass in the real API that can return things from the network. And again, as long as you've architected your application correctly, you just change out what that initial thing that conforms that protocol is. And the rest of your whole app, it doesn't care what it is. As long as it conforms to the protocol, it's just going to work. So this is almost, oh, this almost sounds like dependency injection. Right, yeah. I mean, and, and I mean again, that would be probably a good place to start if you're just trying to get your head around protocols because I do like the idea of passing an object. I mean, and again, this is stuff that you could do in Objective-C, but it just feels richer and more fleshed out in Swift, you know, it being does. able to say, here's an array of objects conforming to this protocol rather than here's an array of objects of this, this type. You know, like like in your testing example there, you know, that's a really good and clever use of protocols because in testing, you want mock objects. You don't want to be hitting the network um, sure. with every request. So if you have two instances, you have, you know, mock API request and real API request, and they both um, conform to API request, then your the, the, the class or the struct that does the processing and does the business logic doesn't care about the implementation. All it cares about is that it's got that contract where you're telling it this method will exist and it knows that and then therefore can call that method. So I think that's a really good place to start and something perhaps that uh, many iOS programmers don't really um, exploit or capitalize on, uh, something like dependency injection because I know every so often we get a dependency injection framework 
that gets quite popular and then and then you never hear of it again and it's kind of there's a lot of magic going on under the hood and I think when it comes to things like Swift because they give us a lot of the tools at the language level you right. know it's something that you can start out small with while you're trying to wrap your head around the concept and then um, and then you can make it as complex and as advanced as you want through like iteration yeah for sure I mean it's it's you don't have to dive in head first and do your whole app in some crazy new you know it's it's a, it's a big 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 change and if you know while you're still learning it if you have deadlines coming up or you need to get something out the door, you don't want to spend all day worrying about, you know, if am I going to do a protocol or a struct or a class? How is this going to work? But you can find little ways to kind of sneak things in one by one. And as you get more comfortable with it, you know, you really start feeling those benefits and you can go crazy with this stuff. With the the mock adapter example we were talking about, or mock, uh, mock, mock API, we have a client we're working with right now who they're they're still developing their API. They're not done with it yet. And so that this, it's worked out perfect for me. I've been able to start with, you know, it feels like I'm using a real API, but I'm not. I'm using this mock API. And then when the real one happens, you know, there's always little kinks here and there. But in theory, I just pass in this, the real API class that conforms to this protocol and everything just works, right? Which is a, that's, that's a big win. And it's not, things like that aren't so much different from the way we used to do it from Objective-C. So it's pretty easy to, like, you can adopt that without much, without much problems. One of the things that I've struggled a little with as I've tried to wrap my head around this, this alternative method is that I feel like I'm having to start with, a, I'm starting at, at a layer that's more abstract th- than I used to. I used to think, okay, what, what objects do I need? What are the things I'm trying to model and represent? And then I create classes for them. And it seems like with the protocol, if I start with a protocol, I am defining an interface first. I think that leads to better code, more more well-structured code, but I also wonder for beginners, or even for me, it, it makes it a little harder to attack the problem. It, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we, we do, um, the, there's, we, we'll do like little local classes for college kids and stuff around here. And you might think like my go-to is like a little simple Reddit client. And if you get caught up in like, you know, let's talk about what we really want to accomplish here. And let's have this protocol and map out all the things that can possibly happen. I mean, it, it slows things down and it really is, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of overhead that pays off like crazy later on. But if you're just coming into this stuff or if you're trying to do like a quick class or, you know, quickly learn a new concept, um, I mean, it's, Maybe start with a struct or a class at first, and then once you feel like you get it, I mean, maybe like you know, if you're if you're doing your first iOS app, you shouldn't be worried about things like dependency injection and what kind of patterns you're going to use. You're trying to learn the frameworks, right? So it's 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 one of those things where yes, it's more work up front. Yes, it abstracts a lot of things, but then you have this huge benefit later on. But um, if if you're just coming to the platform, I would focus more on you know learn about UI view controller, learn about how the buttons work, learn about, you know, maybe core data or something. And then later on, once you understand those core concepts, you can start making them better and better and better by adopting these neat patterns of Swift that makes things more testable or more reusable or easy to refactor later on. Is it, like in your instance, Jake, I mean, it might it might almost become like a refactoring process. So, like you could start off with your standard model objects, either as structs or classes. And then when you get to a point where in in the old object orientated paradigm, you would go, okay, these two objects have a common property or a common method. So what I'll do is I'll create a base class and I'll refactor that out into the base class. Then these two classes can then inherit from those. It might be at that point, instead of going down that route, you go, okay, well, instead I'll define a protocol and then both these objects can conform to that protocol. Oh, then you find yourself not in a position where you're having to move more and more and more into that base class or even add an extra layer between the original base class and a new base class and then your subclasses because instead you just have these um, siloed bits of 
well, an interface and then the, the like the default implementation that you can just conform to and adopt. And even using that sort of basic predicate language, like you don't even need all instance of this particular one to adopt that. It might only be when it's, um, you know, on an instance of UIV or, or, or on an instance of NS managed object like we're talking about core data. So that might be one way to do it. Like don't try and do it from the outset. Do it when you run into an issue where you would have taken an object orientated approach and see if you can apply a protocol orientated approach. Does that make sense? For me, that's kind of where, where I've arrived. And again, I'm just barely getting started with this. So I'm sure start building my models as I normally would. But as soon as I start to have to start rearranging things into a class hierarchy and moving functionality into a base class, uh, rethink that and, and use uh, protocols instead. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Um, our time for talking about protocols is up. Uh, we really appreciate what you brought to the table. Um, we are going to take a quick break and talk a little bit about the sponsor for this episode, Willow Tree. Willow Tree is a new breed mobile engagement partner focused on creating great software to improve users' lives and their hiring. Much more than a mobile app development company, they work with clients such as GE, Johnson & Johnson, Pepsi, and the NBA to create the best mobile experiences possible. Willow Tree excel at bleeding edge projects that allow them to push the boundaries and challenge themselves to keep evolving. How do they do it? They hire the smartest and most passionate people in the industry and give them what they need to keep growing and learning. Willowtree have all the perks of other leading development shops, but what makes them unique is their maker culture, which gives great designers and developers the freedom to produce incredible results. Visit willowtreeapps.com careers to find out more. Okay, Mick, I'm going to turn the time over to you. What are you going to talk about today? Not last week, but the week before. The three of us were at RWDevCon. So this is the second year that Ray's put on a unique conference because it's done in the style of the site so it's all hands up for anybody that doesn't know or hasn't been it's hands-on tutorials so rather than sort of the traditional a speaker stands and talks for 30 minutes and everybody sits and watches a deck of slides and takes some notes and kind of immediately when they've left that session kind of forget most of what we're talking about and then when you get your notes back out you're out of context and you kind of have to relearn everything um Ray wanted to take a different approach and kind of take the videos and the tutorial format that we, we, we have on the site and, and see if we can make that work almost in a classroom-like environment. And we put it on for the first year last year and it was a roaring success. And everybody immediately was asking, are we going to do this again? Are we going to do this again? And I think uh, at first Ray was a little hesitant because it was a significant amount of work for such a small team to do. But then as we sat back and we kind of debriefed and digested what had happened and, and the kind of feedback that we've got because Ray's very big on feedback and in the sessions that we run at the conference after each session we ask the attendees to give feedback and then right at the end of the conference we ask every attendee to give a feedback for the overall conference and we do take note of that we we turn it from written into electronic and then we try and digest it and we, we talk about it several times and look for patterns and look for common themes that we can then change going forward much like we do with the podcast. Um, so these sessions, as I say, are like hands-on. Uh, it's m m many people from the site run these sessions, so it's names people are familiar with if they are regular visitors of the site or, or read our books or watch our videos. And it's just, you will have like five to ten minutes of slides just where you're discussing the theory um, of what, what, what then will then form the rest of the session. And the rest of the session is hands-on. Uh, there's a couple of demos where... 
the speaker will sit down and live code with Xcode and everybody in the room will follow along and it's done at a slow pace and the uh, speaker will explain what it is that they're, they're doing as they're typing so people are learning but they're also learning by doing they're doing it along at the same time and then right at the end they have what we call a lab which is a written tutorial much uh, in the same way that we have on the site and the speaker will walk around the room and answer questions and that kind of stuff and again this year it was a roaring success so I wanted to take this opportunity because the three of us are almost in a, in a unique position much like the conference in that we have I, I spoke at the conference, so we've got a speaker. Jake, I know this year, you spoke last year, but this year you came just as an attendee, so we can get an attendee's point of view. And then, Andrew, you were there uh, representing Willow Tree as a sponsor. So to have a sponsor, an attendee, and a speaker all within the same environment for the next sort of 15, 20 minutes. I just wanted to sort of have a general chat, really, about um, our individual experiences and then maybe you know what we collectively thought about the conference. So I've spoken there for a few minutes. Jake, I'll hand it over to you and, and sort of get your feedback as an attendee. Yeah, so I really enjoyed myself. Um, I enjoyed myself last year, but this year was nice because there was no pressure on me because I didn't have to get my talk ready and think about, you know, the last few polishing, you know, bits. Uh, so it was nice just to just to go to sessions and just to talk to people and, and have enjoy myself. The sessions this year for me, I, I attended mostly advanced sessions. And they were more advanced than last year. So last year, there were things I learned for sure, but there weren't. A, I didn't feel like there was a ton of content that was like really, really deep. It was just that there were APIs that I wasn't familiar with, and so I attended those sessions. But this year, the the advanced sessions for me were right where I needed them to be because there there was a lot of stuff. There was, I mean, I attended a protocol oriented programming session that was really good. There was this amazing session on using the debugger LLDB by Derek Slender. I think he was kind of the winner of the conference. Like everybody was talking about the crazy stuff he did with LLDB. I attended a couple of the sessions I attended used playgrounds a lot, which I really enjoyed. I really like playgrounds and I'm so I really, I really enjoyed the sessions tremendously. And again, at, at my feedback this year was the same as last year in the sense that um, it was, a, it's a very inclusive environment. Everybody's very friendly um, it was really fun to see some of the people I met last year. I was able to spend a little bit more time with this year. That was fantastic. So I thought it was awesome. Would you, would you having attended as a speaker and having attended as an attendee, would you return as a speaker? I would enjoy myself less, but I feel like I need to contribute, if that makes sense. Okay. Like, I don't just want to be a consumer. I want to I wanna participate. Depending on the topic list next year, if there's something that I feel like I'm particularly good at, at kind of covering, I'll definitely put my name in to, to speak next year. I've sp spoke at other conferences and usually what happens is, you know, the organizer will put out a call for speakers or a call for pay or, or however they pitch it, some idea of, and then those and then those speakers will go away and prepare that talk and slides and that kind of thing. But usually once the speaker finds out that they've been accepted, you don't really tend to hear from the conference organizer again until right before the conference. And sometimes it might be sort of as you arrive at the conference. Things are very different with Ray, and anybody that works on the raywenlick.com team will, will understand this because even the way we put out our videos and tutorials is kind of very different to a very different process to how other sites work. But basically, in terms of a um, speaker and a session that they're going to run, I mean, we start, I think it was back in. October last year so October so the conference was in March that's like six months 
And basically, um, you come up with an outline, and then that outline is edited by Ray. You, you would discuss it through, tell him your ideas, and he will give you feedback, and you, you would adjust that, that, um, that outline. And then you go into building your sample projects for the session, which is what this is what you're going to build uh, with live with the attendees. And again, you go back and forth with that that process with Ray. And also this year we had some tech editors. So these are some other people that are on the com team that are there to look for programming issues, performance issues, making sure that our code is consistent. And then you once you've done that, you do your preparation, you do your slides and that kind of stuff. And then you go into several rounds of practice. And after each practice, and this is live practice, so with Ray and the tech editors, and we also have a practice partner assigned, so that when you get to the uh, conference, everybody knows on the team, and hopefully the attendees, this comes through in attendees and looking at some of the, the early feedback we got, it did, that the sessions are incredibly high quality and they are consistent right across the board. So it doesn't matter if you were in Matt Galloway's Swift session in the beginner track or you're in Alexis's you know, uh, protocol or in a programming session in the advanced track, the materials and the, and the sort of quality of the content is consistent right across the board and that delivers a really good experience. Yeah, I I felt that way. I've that everyone brought their own little different style, and so sometimes it was more like building a project. But then other times, like say one of the playground sessions that I attended, he was just kind of just bouncing through different scenarios, and he had a little you know unrelated snippet of code that run in a playground for each scenario. So so there were there was variation, but like say everything was really high quality and very very polished i didn't I didn't leave any session feeling like well, that was kind of light on content yeah and when the 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 production value of everything that I went to was amazing like i i I wasn't you know from the speakers to the people that were helping people out to this the the content itself to the way that things were set up and the way things were run the way the time management worked the audio it was very 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 high production like it felt. You know, I've been in WWDC twice now, and it felt like the same level of preparedness. The speakers were all very, very solid. You could tell they've, you know, there was no hesitations or people messing up. It was very good. So when we were going through these practice sessions, and and this is kind of touching on you being, you know, feeling that pressure as a speaker. I always feel really nervous when I'm talking. So what I tend to do is I will write a full script for my slide deck, and then as I'm working through my slide deck, I'll obviously have presenter's notes up and I'm almost reading it and I try my best not to make it so it comes across to the people in the room that I'm reading it but that's tends to what you know what happens and I never realized this before Ray asked me to make this very small change when I was doing my practice sessions with him this this year is that you become like almost physically attached to your computer when you're giving your your talk you always need to stay within sort of reading distance of your screen, so you can never be more than one or two feet away from your laptop. You're kind of always looking at your laptop screen because you are reading from a script. And also, you are concentrating more on maintaining your place within that script and not losing it, and therefore losing your momentum, than you are in your delivery of that that content. And that was something that I was never aware of. But what Ray asked me to do this time is to completely get rid of the script... And for each slide, just make, you know, like one or two bullet points of things that I need to make sure that I cover in those slides when I do that delivery before moving on to the next one to make sure that the 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 most important things are discussed. 
So I was, all, I was really nervous about going in. I mean, I didn't eat. I was I had back-to-back sessions after lunch on the first day, and I didn't eat any lunch um, going into it because I was that nervous. But it, it was almost liberating because it meant I could move around. It meant I could walk over to the huge screen and start pointing at the slides and sort of gesturing and explaining and... And, it, and uh, you know, it was only maybe once or twice throughout the entire time that I was speaking that I looked at that I looked at my, my screen. So I know what you were saying there, Jake, about it being a, a high-pressure environment speaking, especially for your first time last year. But don't let that put you off. And especially in, in a really good team environment like we have at RayWenlit.com and at RaysWare and at RWDefCon, because, you know, there are always people there willing to help you out. But, like... I think the thing with me, and this is what Ray was trying to get off, is you know the stuff. We, we, it's not fraudulent. We're not trying to portray stuff or, or deliver stuff that we don't really know what we're talking about. We know what we're talking about, and therefore we don't need to do things like rely on notes. We can just talk about it, and that passion and that knowledge and all that kind of stuff will come out as you are talking about it. Uh, and that was my biggest takeaway as a speaker from the conference this year. And what that actually did is, even though I was incredibly nervous before I did those back-to-back sessions, like... Once I was into the first couple of minutes of that first session and I realised like the world, the world wasn't going to fall apart around me because I didn't have speaker's notes, I, you know, I, I relaxed into it and I really started enjoying myself. And then you come out of those that session and you and you feel like 10 feet tall um, and then everybody's coming up to you and saying they enjoyed the session and you're getting all this positive feedback. And for me, it was a really... Um, invigorating experience this year much more so than last year and, and probably any other speaking appearance that I've done so and uh, Andrew I mean you touched on it there uh, when we we're talking about the level of content but but both from somebody that got to attend sessions but also somebody that, that was there with a purpose I mean you were there looking you're hiring we've just heard the ads about your hiring um, so I mean that's a good place for you or a good environment for you to network in so I'm just curious from a sponsorship or a sponsor point of view, what what RWDev got? Like, how much value does it offer? Sure. So we, we do a lot of different like recruiting sort of events, but not I mean you know you have your career fairs at colleges and those kind of things. But we try to do a lot more like you know meetups or conferences or hackathons because it's fun to do those kind of recruiting events where you're not just there as a recruiter, but you're there to network, you're there to meet people, you're there to mentor and help people out, and it kind of it, it not only. You don't only find people that could be potential candidates to work for you, but you also just find people you can help. And then they, they you have this, like, the, the, the Willow Tree name kind of spreads as, oh, those guys that were at the conference, they helped me with this one problem I had. Or, you know, I was at a hackathon, and they, they saved me, you know, three hours of time, you know, helping me with some problem I was having. So um, events like RW DevCon are great for that because they're, like, just the right size. So we'll do some of these, like, really, really big college hackathons. We'll do these, like, you know, recruiting at WWDC, and there's thousands of people there. And it's really hard to get a, a you know, more personal connection with somebody. But a lot of the folks at RW DevCon, we were able to talk to for, like, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 minutes. And not only just one day, but multiple days. Because I think there was, what, like, roughly 270-ish people? That's right, so it's... Yeah. It's a good pool of people where you're going to have, you know, you have beginners, you're going to have advanced guys, you have guys that are just there because they're, you know, just hopping into it. So you have a nice, it's enough people to where you can get people of all different skill levels, but a small enough number to where you can kind of get to know everybody. So it's kind of neat to be able on the second day, like recognize a lot of people and say hey to a lot of people. And we had lots of guys talk to us the first day that then came back and talked to us again about other stuff the second day. So as far as like 
what we got of it as a, as a as a sponsor, I think we got a lot out of it. I think we were able to get ourselves out there more. We had a lot of great great people come up to us that are, you know we, we've got some interviews lined up already from people we've talked to. So um, we found some great people. We we met some more friends. We were to help some people out, make more connections. And the the more of these kind of events that we do, the more people are like, hey Willow Tree, I know you guys from you know X or Y, and um, I think that's great. And um, it was so fun to be able to kind of like, you know, during those like five or 10 or 15 minutes before and after sessions, we kind of sneak back to our little recruiting table and hang out and talk to people, then rush into the sessions a little bit late. But um, I went with a, another um, coworker came with me and he had a few sessions where like he actually didn't end up going to the session because he had so many people out there talking to him about what Willow Tree did that he, um, you know, he just stayed out and talked to people. So that was awesome. The fact we had enough feedback and people really interested in what we were doing. Um, so it was great. Um, I think it worked out really well. Um, I think this and then a few different little hackathons I've done, the smaller size ones, have been my favorite recruiting events to go to. Did you did you manage to catch any of uh, James Dempsey in the break notes? Oh, definitely. Okay, that, so that's so funny. Break points, the, um, sorry. Yeah, oh, the, yeah, the break points. So this this was this was great. So the first night we got there on the um, the Thursday night, we had the little kind of um, you know cocktail hour kind of thing. Um, we were just kind of hopping from crowd to crowd, trying to meet different people. We met all kinds of really great guys from, like, you know, we saw some cool guys from Germany. We saw some cool guys from the UK. Um, just people from everywhere. All kinds of really great people. But we ran into, um, we ran into, it's James, right? James MC. We, yeah. uh, we ran into him, and I was like, hey, you know, like, you know, we're so-and-so from Willow Tree. We're here to do this. Um, what are you doing here? Are you a programmer? What do you do? He's like, oh, I, I write songs about programming. We're like, oh, that's so neat. So I, I, had, I had never heard of him before. And I'm talking to him. I go, like, oh, this guy's cool. He writes, you know, he writes programming music. And then the next day, um, you know, when he, he, he does the little concert and he talks about who he is, I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy's so cool. He's like a celebrity. And I had no idea the night before. So um, I thought that was so funny. Yeah, he was great. I really enjoyed that a lot. Did you manage, so um, along with like these tutorial-esque uh, sessions, we also have some inspiration talks, which are kind of, you kind of sit back once, because obviously after you've done two or three sessions, these tutorial sessions on the trot, you, your brain's a bit frazzled. So, you know, we try and intersperse these inspiration talks where it's kind of more um, to get you thinking about something other than programming. James Dempsey did a inspiration talk, and it was actually called AFK Away From Keyboard. Yeah, and I mean, the reason I picked on James specifically, because obviously we were saying that what, how, a great, how good a musician he was, um, and, it, and it was great. Those songs are incredibly, incredibly clever uh, and funny. He, he used to work for Apple, and he used to do WDC, so he was, he was already sort of trained, in, trained if you like, uh, in uh, presenting to crowds and talking to crowds, but he did this talk on called AFK, Away From Keyboard, and it's kind of all making sure that you take time out from programming to do other things that you like, to do things that are important, so you don't look back in the years to come and, and say, uh, you know, you, you missed out on doing X, Y, or Z because you were too busy working 24-7 on some project project that you had to get out the door by, you know, some, some deadline. So he was telling his story about his dad, and he was working at Apple at the time, and they're working at Aperture, and they had this deadline of trying to get Aperture 1.0 out the door. His dad got, got ill. Oh, no, it was kind of building up, and every so often he was taking time out of working on Aperture, even though they had these really uh, aggressive deadlines, so that he could spend time with his dad as his dad got older. And then his dad got ill, so then he left Apple, and he was at this startup, and he took leave from this startup. And, and 
you could see like the whole room was hanging on on his every word. And then you almost got to the point where you're feeling, okay, so there's some bad news coming now because it, you know he was talking about his his dad being really ill and he was having to take time out of work and you're everybody in the room was kind of think I think thinking the same thing. And then when he said that his dad was fine and recovering, there was this huge sigh of relief in the room. <laughs> but it just shows like how these kind of inspiration talks, this idea that Ray had to intersperse these hands-on, te- technically heavy sessions with these things that relax you and and draw emotion out of you and you know it, it, and and that for me was I was always a bit unsure of inspiration talks and then when I went to watch James's and we went on this emo- emotional roller coaster with him and I seen the effect that that had on that entire room like I that the the penny dropped for me then and I kind of understood why uh, why these are so important to Ray and why he wants them to always be a part of the conference and um, so that was something else that I just wanted to to talk about but I think everybody that went, you know, did genuinely have a really good time. Jake, you was an attendee. I mean, everyone I spoke to was having a blast. You know, it was great, Andrew, that not only were you there as a sponsor, but that you were able to get involved and people were talking to you. I know we had a good couple of chats while we were there because it's the first time we've met in person. Um, and, you know, it, it, it just was a really great experience that I'm already looking to next year. All right, Mick, thanks for that. Your time has come to a close. That's all for this episode. Thanks again, Andrew, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Always happy to be here. If you have any feedback or comments on the podcast, please get in contact with us at podcast at raywenderlake.com. And don't forget to leave us some reviews on iTunes. We love those. They help us out a ton and keep that feedback coming. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.